Welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm Alice Stoltz. In this episode, we learn if there are such things as bargains when it comes to property. And then we unpack the rising trend of moving to smaller cities. The market is hot, we know this, but can you find a bargain when prices have been rising so rapidly and demand is so high? We hear lots of stories about buyers pushing their budgets and getting auction FOMO. Are there actually homes out there that can make your heart and your wallet sing? Julie DeBont Barker, founding director of Property Home Base, is here to help us find out. Julie, welcome to Property Unpacked. Thank you so much, Alice. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Julie, this is just such a vexed issue, isn't it? But what is a bargain in your eyes? Well, it's very simple at the moment. And um, really, any property purchase that you're able to buy in or around the advertised selling range is a bargain. So many properties are going you know, the standard 10% above the agent's listed asking price, almost those days are gone. Um, Especially in Melbourne and Sydney, we're Mm. seeing it 15% a few weeks ago. We saw one go 45% above the top end of the range. So if you find a property that you can buy within that selling range, that's a bargain. And what about the issue, though, of is it a bargain or is it a lemon? Because I think sometimes we are seeing that, particularly in the outer suburbs of the metro cities, when you go really far out and there's no infrastructure there or there's, you know, there's a lack of anything around these properties that are selling for the quoted price. So how does one distinguish between a bargain or a lemon? I mean, whether it be, you know, in the metro area, regional no matter what, you've got to do your due diligence. So if you do your due diligence correctly, that's going to ensure it's not a lemon. You know, getting your building inspection, your pest inspection, making sure all your contracts are reviewed. If you're an investor and you're, you know, looking from, from those eyes, then you need to call the councils for any development or zoning restrictions, ensuring that there's no public housing all of those things that if you're doing all of those things and doing your due diligence, then, you know, the home should provide what you want it to provide. And always remembering that there might be a reason that you've purchased it a little bit, you know, under normal market value or under the median for that area. But when you go to sell it, whatever that that um, restriction or issue was, it's probably still going to be there. So, you know, say you buy 10% under the median value in a particular area, then when you go to sell, you can't expect to gain that 10% automatically because you purchased it for less. Julie, just on the note before you mentioned doing your due diligence, do you see people stumbling over that step often and something that some buyers are reluctant to partake in, even though intellectually I think many people know the value of it? Yeah, unfortunately, Alice, a lot of the buyers out there right now are becoming really desperate and, you know, desperate people do desperate things. Um, This is usually people's largest financial 
you know, purchase that they're going to make in a lifetime. It's not where you want to play around with this. Uh, you know, one of the, the strategies, and we use this strategy as buyer's agents trying to take properties off the market prior to an auction. And then if it ends up being, you know, just a, a private sale, a lot of buyers will strategize and think, well, I'll go in unconditional and not have any due diligence, not do a building inspection, not do a pest inspection and rush it through. But it's a big gamble. I mean, just this week, one of our advocates, he um, actually had a building inspection for one of his clients and it was a new townhouse. And from all visual sightings and inspections that we had done, it looked perfect. And when we had the building inspector go through it, it was the worst build he had seen in 20 years of being a building inspector. And he found all sorts of things that our fairly trained eyes just could not see. You know, there's lots of things that can be wrong. And, you know, you got to go in eyes wide open. If if you choose to go that route, you got to know that you're you're running the risk and weigh out the gamble. Yeah, and and let's let's talk tin tax about that. Like, how much do you think buyers should put aside for due diligence? Like, if we're just talking um, a pest inspection, a building inspection, and you know a few other steps along the way, what sort of amount in a ballpark sense do you do you think people need to allocate to that part of the transaction? Well, pretty much, you know, a year or two years ago. We would expect to purchase a property with a buyer, you know, really the first one that we go after really hard, we would really hope to be buying that property for the buyer. Now we can't promise that um, because the market has gone mad pretty much everywhere in Australia. So there could be, you know, we could be making two or three attempts prior to them actually purchasing. And every attempt does need that due diligence. So I guess I'd answer that by saying per home and roughly speaking about a thousand dollars. You can probably do it between seven hundred and a thousand depending on, you know, who you select. It's not really a great place to cut corners. It is a, an area where you get what you pay for. So seven hundred to a thousand per home probably allow, you know, that it might take you three tries before you buy a home. And that's certainly we're seeing that everywhere that that you know that's that's kind of the standard right now and there's a lot of heartbreak in that but so i guess if i were to say set aside the amount set aside 3000 for the due diligence and if you get it for less than that that's amazing and fabulous and you can celebrate mm. now julie why are certain properties not influenced by these super hot market conditions we do see as we look around australia that certain properties really are going bonkers and other properties are kind of you know just sort of cruising on through a bit more can you talk a little bit about why some properties seem to be sort of inoculated from this this madness that's taking place around the country so there's there's Usually a few reasons. One reason can be that it's an ugly duckling. It has poor street appeal. The photography that the agent did might have been poor photography, poor lighting. Maybe they even did photographs of it being quite messy with a tenant in there. You might look at the floor plans and think, you know, it's an odd floor plan, odd layout. But one of the things in that is... When you have difficult and or messy tenants in a property, that makes it really difficult for the agents to sell it. And whilst that might be really frustrating 
from your end being a buyer, that can be a great opportunity to get a bargain because trust me, they want to get rid of it because <laughs> it's, it's hard for them too. And, you know, they're going to be talking it down to the vendors because of the tenants. And that's an opportunity for a buyer. I think that is such good advice, Julie. Mm. Um, what else, Julie? You mentioned there are a few other things about these hot properties that avoid hot market. What else do you think? Well, one of the other things that can really um, get in your way, I guess, is, and it's a hard one because when agents are really, when they're really honest and they advertise where they actually believe the property is going to sell. So let's say the property is really, really everyday worth 900. Now, most agents in this market will advertise that up to around 750, 800 maybe. And the buyers are conditioned now to go, okay, well, it's marketed up to 800. We know it's going to go for around nine. But what if you've got an honest agent out there that is actually advertising the top of the range correctly? And you just discard it. Mm. You just go past it. So how do buyers get it look around that then, Julie? Well, the easy thing I could say is, you know, somebody in the market that knows all the agents and, and knows because every agency operates differently with this. So it's really getting to know once you've determined an area, get to know the agents in that area. So the first thing is to narrow down your area because if you're doing it like, you know, six or eight different suburbs, you're never going to get the relationship or get the knowledge of a particular area and how particular agents operates. I guess the other thing to always bear in mind, if you're looking at a particular property and there's a similar property, say it's going to auction a week or two prior and it blows your budget out of the water, that underbidder is going to be around. And you need to know that your competition is possibly going to be have more money than you and you may need to move suburbs. So when we come back to that issue around buying for buyers on a really tight budget, we've got that idea of looking at ugly ducklings and also really understanding and pushing on the price thing. Is there anything else, Julie, that, that they should bear in mind if for our listeners who are on that super tight budget? Yeah. Um, well, just... Yeah, going back, just one other point, if I may, in, in that hot market, things that influences properties, because there's one other thing that you can track and watch for, and that is when you find an out-of-area agent in that area that you're looking at. So you're looking, you know, and you, you know, you look at who's selling it, and mm-hmm. we just had one recently that was selling in a suburb, an outer northern suburb of Melbourne. Their office was in the Bayside area. <laughs> Right. Mm. And my first phone call to him, he was complaining, <laughs> complaining to me about a 45 minute drive to go to an open. And, you know, I was trying to set up a private appointment for a buyer <laughs> and he wouldn't come. So, you know, the good news and the bad news of that is that if he's making it difficult for you, he's making it difficult for everyone. So if it really looks like a property that you might have interest in, you want to work with that guy or girl and try and get a private appointment when nobody else is going to be there. And um, they just want to sell it. They just want to sell it. And those are ones that you really can actually get a good price. So um, I finally did get an appointment, a private appointment with this agent. And, um, he, you know, basically he told me what he would sell it for. And he says, you give me an offer of this and I'll sell it today. And he was over it. Mm. 
So Julie, how can you maximize your chances of finding a property below or at your budget level? Like we know how many, particularly first home buyers are really just struggling at the moment with their tight budget and they cannot creep over any more than what they probably already have. What's the best way for them to maximize that chance of finding a property? You know, the interesting thing is it doesn't matter if you have a 500,000 budget or a 2.5 budget. Everyone is feeling like this right now because it's competition on just about every price level. But to alleviate that feeling, buyers need to really get clear on what their wants are and what their needs are. One of the questions we ask our buyers is, you know, if you can only have one, and you can only have one of these two things, which would you choose? The best location or the best home? And it's a, it's a really tough question, but what I can promise is if somebody can like answer that question with certainty and clarity, they'll buy sooner because they know where they're going to need to make their compromises. Um, Julie, that was so fascinating talking to you. I feel like I could have just Kept, kept pulling on threads there. There's so much there, isn't there? But Julie, thank you so much for talking to Property Unpacked today. And I'm really interested um, in watching how these, how the market changes and how it changes for your buyers over the months and year ahead. So I'd love to talk to you again at some stage. I would love that, Alice. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak. Lockdowns and working from home compelled many Australians to seriously consider where they want to live. But what if a tree or a sea change was just too much of a drastic change? To chat us through the rising trend of Australians moving from bigger cities to smaller cities, Simon Kustenmacher joins us. Simon is the co-founder and director of research at the Demographics Group. Simon, welcome back to Property Unpacked. Ah, thanks for having me again. Now, Simon, we've been hearing plenty about the sea and the tree change in the past sort of six months in particular, but what about the city change? The data is showing growth in some of our smaller capitals. What's going on there? Well, you're essentially asking, why is Darwin, why is Adelaide, Newcastle and all those little towns growing uh, compared to Sydney and Melbourne? Well, I guess it's largely because people still want to live in cities. There is lots that cities have to offer that smaller towns don't. First and foremost, there is a large enough pool of jobs available in, let's call them medium-sized cities. So that means you can actually move to the city without having a job secured there, and you can be reasonably comfortable to find a job. And that is not so much the case for some of the smaller sea change, tree change locations, where you probably will want to make sure that you have a job uh, before you move there, or where you can ensure that you can do your current job remotely. Mm. So before we drill down into that, what would you class as a big city and what would be a small city, just so we're super clear on what we're talking about and what locations we're referring to? Well, so according to the ABS and according to the federal government, uh, they essentially divide the cities into regional cities and uh, metropolitan urban cities, and there are only three big cities, according to this definition. Perth and Adelaide don't make the cut and I count it as regional cities. 
I wouldn't go as far, though, in this case. I would essentially just say cities below a million people. Okay. And sea and tree changes are looking for big space and air, but what is it about these smaller cities that also offers people a change in the lifestyle that they're after, do you think? In order to answer this question, I think it's important to understand who the main cohort is of people that are moving at the moment. And this is by far the millennial generation. The millennials, we define them as being born between 81 and 99. Um, they are the uh, generation of procrastinators. They are the people who invented the gap year, who stayed at university for just one more degree, who have kids later in life, who buy their first home later in life. But they do all those boring stock standard family formation things anyways. And this is right now the millennials are finally at this stage of the life cycle where they're looking for the family home. That means they're looking for a home that they can comfortably be in for at least the next 20 years, probably 25 years. That means you do need all the stuff to make your kids happy. Schools, probably nice outdoor type activities so you can actually, you know, live a fun family life. You also are very, very keen to be able to afford a large enough house, meaning three to four bedrooms at the very least. For many, many millennial families, um, they might still want to continue to live in the inner suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney, but can't afford to do so. So they will actually scan the landscape of Australia to find decent, sizable cities where all those beautiful options of schools and services are um, are secured, but where housing is affordable. Mm. Simon, has all this sort of been triggered by the pandemic, this sort of escalation of people wanting to go to smaller cities? We know the trend sea change has, but is that is, is it a result of COVID? It's, it's a beautiful trend that would have occurred anyways, but has been absolutely turbocharged by the pandemic. The millennial cohort, for example, currently lives overwhelmingly in the inner suburbs of Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. And it was always going to happen that the millennials throughout the 2020s start families and need three and four bedroom homes. These three and four bedroom homes were never going to be available in the inner city. We're not just not building European style three and four bedroom apartments at the moment where they could uh, raise a family in. So therefore, the millennials were always going to seek uh, three and four bedroom houses somewhere else. But we would have expected rather a uh, move to suburbia and the urban fringe than people actually moving to regional cities. Uh, and that that trend has been empowered by the working from home trend, which, of course, really was driven by the pandemic, where employers were forced to trust their workforce to work remotely. Simon, what about subsequent generations after millennials? What do you see playing out for them? I know I'm asking you to do a bit of crystal ball gazing, but knowing that how millennials have ex- been expedited, what do you see happening in the, in the decades to come? Well, if we just look at the next decade, uh, Gen Z, the Greta Thunberg generation that is still currently in high school and slowly entering university, um, millennial generation is leaving behind uh, empty apartments in the inner cities where the universities are. Now you have the Gen Zs moving into those apartments and they'll move into cheap real estate because the type of apartments that they will be moving into for at least the next couple of years are nice and cheap and they will need to go there because they will still attend university. They will still start their careers in the inner city 
largely at the at the big employers who will still have in a city um, office towers. You know, the the office uh, attendance rate might go down, but offices still function in the inner city. And so the Gen Zs will have a emptied out city that they can make their own over time. So we would therefore expect that the impact that uh, Gen Z can have on the inner city is going to be exponentially large, simply because uh, <laughs> they have so much room to play with and a city that is very willing to take on uh, the, the changes that a new generation might suggest. If I push that argument a little bit further, though, Simon, what happens for Generation Z when they want to have their children and need a bit more space and the affordability has just literally gone through the roof in those metro areas and the millennials have probably driven up prices in the small cities, what happens? Unless there's some bright spark amongst them who reinvents the way we live completely, um, how is that going to play out? So if we look at the housing cycle, um, millennials buy houses in the 2020s, family houses. The Gen Zs will buy houses in the 2030s. The 2030s is also the decade where the baby boomer generation is finally going to leave their homes. What I mean by this is we talked a lot about um, baby boomers downsizing. Baby boomers are not downsizing their family homes. They're only leaving their family homes once they are physically forced to do so, essentially meaning once the house, the family house becomes a physical hazard, becomes too much work to do so. And over the next decade, the baby boomer generation is still too young, too healthy to be forced to leave the home. The downsizing decade for the baby boomers is the 2030s, which is the decade when Gen Z will be looking for housing. So in a sense, um, you'll have this large generation of baby boomers making housing available and this small generation of Gen Zs looking for housing. So that should actually mean that the Gen Zs uh, get a reasonably soft housing market. Mm. Let's just hope they've got the funds to pay for it then. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So that's that's the whole other problem is, is how this is going to be financed. And this is something that will worry the baby boomer generation. So we will be talking about this in the 2030s. There will be an awful lot about timing of selling the family home. You should probably sell it a bit earlier before you're forced to do so to time the market if this logic applies. And then, of course, we argue if the middle suburbs of Australia, where the uh, where the baby boomers live at the moment, will the Gen Zs buy those houses, or will the um, millennials move back to <laughs> to Melbourne and Sydney in the middle suburbs? So there will be uh, in the twenty thirties an awful lot of housing will enter the market. So there will be a reshuffling of population, which should be kind of fun to watch. Yeah. Simon, that was just fascinating talking to you. I feel we've done a fair bit of crystal ball gazing there and, um, yeah, hypothesizing over what may may pad out. So it's a very encouraging look to the future, I think. I, I always think it's good fun to actually look at, you know, decades ahead and try to understand the the main drivers that are, that are going to happen. And, of course, there will be quite a few curveballs uh, thrown at us. You know, there will be hopefully not another pandemic, but there are always events coming along out of left field that we didn't account for. And then we need to readjust our, our view of the future. Yeah. And it certainly makes your work all the more fascinating, Simon. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Ah, it's been, been a joy. Thank you. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and have new episodes delivered to you as soon as they drop. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you.